Hey, good morning. It's uh, another top 10 day. I drove <laughs> too slow during the uh, rush hour here this morning in Heartland, and but uh, the driver of the other car on the road didn't seem to be upset, <laughs> so that was a good part. Uh, I want to get, I know Jeff's got things going. Hey, Jeff, man, I love John Prine, too, so that's a great song. Jeff in Janesville said he saw a huge flock of pelicans, or a huge flock of pelicans make Lake Elysian their home. There must be 150 to 300. They probably weigh 30 pounds each, so it sounds like they're eating well there. They look so big. Their bones are hollow and very light. And if you took their uh, their bones and their feathers, they probably make up less than one pound of those birds' weight. Oh. So it's incredible. But uh, I was out on the Pelican Breeze yesterday, and I want to thank everybody at Good Samaritan and Albert Lee, uh, Bancroft Creek Estates, and uh, the good folks on the Pelican Breeze. We had another full boat and uh, talked a lot about pelicans. There's a lot of them on uh, Albert Lee Lake. And they are, either those have had maybe a failed nesting or they are too young to have nests. So they're just hanging around. They're living the single carefree life and just going fishing wherever they want. So they get to go to beautiful places like Lake Elysian and Elberty Lake. And uh, Jeff, um, thanks for uh, the report. And again, thanks for John Prine, man. You can't go wrong there. Uh I was in one of the life's quiet corners the other morning when a cooper's hawk flew low over my head. And when I say low, I mean low over my head. And uh, I guess my resemblance to Big Bird <laughs> nearly cost me there. <laughs> so it's just, I, I don't know what it was thinking. Well, you it's are so pretty tall, Al, so I mean, I guess it's rel- am, relative, but, but yeah. Oh, I, I, I saw it coming from the neighbors. I could, they're a ways away. Yeah. And I could see this bird, and I thought, what is that coming this way? And I was right on the edge in the woods there, and it was a cooper's hawk, and just went, whew, just buzzed huh. my tower, so... Wow. Uh, Robins are filling the table of contents in my yard, and I remember that Caroline Kennedy had a pet canary when JFK was in the White House, and when the bird died, it was buried in the White House yard. What does that have to do with Robins? Well, the canary was named Robin because Caroline liked Robins. Oh. Robin the canary. I'm seeing a lot of what uh, folks will call uh, morning glory. It's a field bindweed, or I guess I'm I'm seeing probably more of its larger relative, the hedge bindweed. And they are perennial vines with white or pink flowers, and they have arrowhead-shaped leaves. And I often see hedge bindweed climbing shrubs or fences and in open fields. It's similar, again, to field bindweed, which is a weedier species with smaller flowers and leaves. And they're closely related to the morning glory of the garden, which is an annual vine with white, pink, purple, or blue flowers. And it has heart-shaped leaves, so heart-shaped leaves on morning glories and arrowhead-shaped leaves on these field or hedge bindweeds. Are they invasive, do you know? Because I know when they come up, they seem to be very prolific. Yeah, I think they are a bit. I don't know that I see an area where it's just overcome with them. And they're, you know, they're kind of pretty. I they see are. Them and 
they're usually growing out of all the greenery, and all of a sudden you have this nice, beautiful white flower pointed right at you. They always seem to be pointing right at you, so it was it's pretty cool, but I guess a lot of folks just do not have them. I was having my car filled with gas at a Wawa convenience store because you can't pump your own gas in New Jersey. I remember years ago I pulled in there like a good Minnesota and I just <laughs> grabbed that pump and the guy about tackled me. Oh. He said, what are you doing? And I said, but yes, we can't do that here. And, oh. I don't think he liked me from that point on. He pumped my gas, but uh, he wasn't real happy. Uh, Wawa is a Native American word, more or less, for the Canada goose. Oh, I didn't know that. Yep. You know, you can't help but be one with nature. We always talk about, was it Woody Allen said he was two with nature, I think it was. Uh, Spending time in a natural environment has been linked to lower stress levels, reductions in tension and anxiety, and improved memory. And forest bathing is the process of soaking up the sight, smells, and sounds of a natural setting to promote physiological and psychological health. And that's what I was doing when I, when the uh, Cooper's Hawk flew just right <laughs> over my head. Uh, people on nature walks tend to engage in less negative, self-referential overthinking. We've all done that, you know, you just think about something and then you think about it again and you think about it again and you just, you make it worse. Uh, The EPA says that Americans on average spend approximately 90% of their time indoors. And sometimes that's where the concentrations of some pollutants are much higher than typical outdoor concentrations. So the idea of forest bathing is to awaken the five senses to everything that's around us. The costs of forest bathing are reimbursed by health insurance in Japan, China, and Korea. I forgot something you sent me too, Karen. You sent me this wonderful picture of a quarter. And then uh, I was just, you know, I'm always happy to see photos of money, but right (laughs) by it was a white line sphinx moth caterpillar. You know, it almost looked like... A snake. It was big, fat, and black, but it was very, very, actually very big, almost like a, a, a hornworm, tomato hornworm, except it was all black with just some yellow spotting on it. And we looked and identifying it and couldn't find anything like it. And then um, I posted it on the Facebook, and a lot of people said it was that uh, white line sphinx moth, but they can vary apparently in their appearance. So that's why it didn't look like anything I'd seen on the, the identifying sites. Yeah, and I know a lot of the books that uh, have caterpillars, folks will look it up and it'll have, you know, they usually have one caterpillar for each moth or butterfly. Well, with the white line sphinx moth, which is the ones that we see that look like uh, hummingbirds. They act like hummingbirds. Uh, They kind of hover and their proboscis comes out so it looks like a bill as they feed and they are just, uh, they're beautiful things. I remember being down to uh, Willow Glen, which is in Baroque, Iowa. They used to be on a uh, Iowa public television show from down there, and they had a demonstration garden, and they had castor beans that were just covered with white line sphinx moth. But you're right, they come in green and black and every color in between, so it's uh, real hard for the books and, I suppose, online sites to have one of 
every color that they could be in. Uh, Jim Grady of Fairmont said uh, when working, he has found toads in truckloads of gravel. Really? Huh. Yeah, and he was wondering, what, you know, what are you doing there? And I don't imagine they gave him any discount on buying <laughs> the gravel because there were toads in there. So it, it sounds strange at first, but, you know, when you think about it, they like natural floodplains and mineral extraction sites. They have much in common, those two things. The power of floodwaters and alluvial plains, the forces of extraction activities and quarries and gravel pits, they continually remodel the landscape, and they create this diverse habitat structures. So in large mineral extraction sites, amphibians can roam freely between their spawning waters and somewhere where they might want to spend the winter. So mineral extraction sites include large permanent bodies of water as well as temporary pools and then a place to hang out in the gravel. So speaking of amphibians, do toads have a second breeding season? Because uh, not was it last week I heard them screaming at each other again. You know how those toads make such loud noises and I'm still seeing yeah. babies hopping around uh, the pond out there. So I'm just curious if, if they have like a different maybe a couple seasons. I I don't think so. If oh. uh, it, I don't know what they and I've heard that too. And uh, maybe they like to just sing. <laughs> I, I don't. I think they're really pretty singers. And folks, if you've not heard it, it's a long, drawn out, high pitched musical trill, and they can last up to thirty seconds at yeah. least. And if you watch them, the male's vocal sac. It becomes round and inflated, but their their spring mating season is when they do it. And I know they're uh, on maturity. I want to say they're two or three years old before they're mature enough to have a meaningful relationship. Oh, so I don't know why they're doing that. I've heard that also. Uh, I do know that these as Jim illustrated with the gravel the american toad burrows beneath the ground usually in sandy soils just below the frost line so i'm guessing that's what they were doing in the gravel but why they're singing now i'm happy they are i don't know why they are unless uh boy somebody just missed the boat in the spring and is still out there and maybe there's a little territorial thing i wouldn't think there would be with those guys but who knows what they're up to Well, there. I have a question about them. Do Since I have so many of those little toads in the pond, do they like Japanese beetles? Because I've got a bunch of those, too, and I'm, I'm hoping that they like them, but i probably guessing they don't. It wouldn't surprise me that they would eat them, but, you know, the beetles aren't down on the ground no. enough where the toads are, probably. So they don't. I, I know toads love to eat slugs, and I love them for that. I yeah. just, uh, boy, they're my friend because they will eat to uh, slugs. Anything that eats slugs, I like. Uh, they're carnivorous, so they will consume insects, worms, spiders, and slugs. They are uh, a food source, those little toads, to a variety of birds. Uh, herons, I think of garter snakes, will eat them. Hognose snakes. So there's, uh, they are preyed upon by a few things. But I don't know. I think if a beetle fell to the ground, they would probably gobble it down. 
I hope so. Saw it. <laughs> yeah, the little guys would have trouble with that because the beetle is about the same size. Yes. So they, uh, uh, Cindy Drill in North Mankato said, I've been hanging some fluff balls for nesting for several years, and for the first time this year, other birds are joining in the harvest of nest materials besides the goldfinches. We have watched the hummingbirds gather from it, knowing the nest they build is tiny. It's difficult to believe they need all that they pull off the ball, but it's fun to watch. Unfortunately, house sparrows are also finding the nesting material an easy choice. I do find birds will gather from this nest building material almost as soon as I place it out in the spring, even though I am aware that goldfinches don't raise their families until later in the season. They must do practice nests early on before they, the real work begins, and none of the nests are built in our yard either. Yeah, I think they probably, I don't know if they build practice nests or not, but I think they practice the the gathering. They see that, and it just kicks in that instinct to gather a little bit. Uh, Deb Weitzel of Albert Lee said, since my husband Lance passed away over three years ago, I can be very emotional sometimes. I got to witness today, and will go on for days, a squirrel building a nest basically above my house. I was and am so thrilled, made me cry. Oh. I love watching nature so much, and this is such a thrill. Uh, thanks, Deb. It's nice to hear from you. And I, I knew Lance, and I'm so sorry. Uh, Stephen Lisa Hill said, We live in Wells, and we were hiking at Myrie Big Island State Park when we saw a bird that wasn't familiar to us. It was pretty large compared to many birds around here. Well, anyway, it took a while to identify, but we are fairly certain that we saw a yellow-billed cuckoo. We aren't very familiar with cuckoos. Are you aware if anyone has seen them around here, or have you seen one here? We tried going back in the same path today but didn't see it. Steve got these pictures, but the sun was in the wrong position, so they aren't the best. The sun is, uh, it it gets a kick out of being in the wrong position, I think. It uh, <laughs> photobombs a lot of things. Uh, the yellow-billed cuckoo, it does nest here. My father called them rain crows because he thought their calls foretold rain. And I heard one calling recently. And I have seen them there. But Steve and Lisa, the thing with cuckoos, they are skulkers. So few people get to see them. So that was a great sighting. I heard from Micah. And Micah said, I appreciate your help with my parakeet, Moritz. I guess the good thing is he had a lot of freedom to fly around the house. And he had a few girlfriends. He was Casanova. I always hate, this was a parakeet that escaped. I always hated to have them locked up, even in the house. He was a dart when he flew, just don't know how his endurance will stand up. I have noticed some goldfinches. They look like one of his girlfriends, so maybe <laughs> one of them can show him the ropes of the wild. At least he had the ultimate freedom all animals deserve. As I was collecting Japanese beetles, I heard a bird commotion. It sounded different, so I thought maybe Moritz had uh, showed up. As I looked across the street, I saw a hawk jumping, stopping, and grinding a bird into the neighbor's gravel driveway. So violent. There was a bunch of other birds trying to distract 
distract the hawk, and the hawk flew away. I hope it wasn't my bird. Oh, I, I released my lady. It, that's probably a Cooper's hawk, and it's their uh, modus operandi. Is uh, yeah. I, uh, Micah goes on says I released my ladybugs after it rained. I did release them during the day because they were in a box for a few days, and I didn't know how hot they were during the shipping. I guess I was also a little too excited. And uh, I'll mention Micah bought some ladybugs, and uh, they sent them via UPS or USPS or FedEx or something. He said, I I just couldn't wait. It really reminded me of Christmas as a little child. After a few days, I saw one ladybug. I joke saying it's my $30 ladybug. Since then, as I've been collecting thousands of Japanese beetles, I've come across six to ten of the ladybugs. It's amazing how happy I feel when I see one. Yeah. He said, uh, get up before the sun and start gathering Japanese beetles before they get their coffee and eat breakfast. I stop after the sun goes down. I started the first day. I noticed them around the 5th of July. After the first day, I wondered what I'd gotten myself into and thought about calling it quits. I'm glad I stuck with it as the number I collect now are almost a countable number. I actually have to search for them and have expanded my search zone into the neighbor's yard. And I guess that's the best way to do it with uh, Japanese beetles, Micah. So. Speaking of Japanese uh, beetles, did I, I don't know if I sent you this or not, but there was a recipe for eating Japanese beetles. Did I send you that? I don't think so, but I, I think I'd be willing to try it. Well, I should send you it then. It says they have the same protein content by weight as sirloin beef steak, so 23 grams per 100 grams, and they're an excellent source of B12 and zinc, and apparently, the they, there's a recipe. Um, you collect them in a wide mouth quart mason jar. So you need water, and and then um, it talks about how you can process them and it, how to prepare them. You need a freezer, refrigerator. You need a fine mesh strainer. You need a pot of boiling water. You need some spices and a dehydrator or oven. So I mean, pretty easy to make. And they describe it as as eating. Um, protein popcorn so uh, they're apparently very crunchy and uh, then they show different uh, types of sauces you can put over to add a little more flavor but yeah it's it's seriously (laughs) people who forage you know they forage for mushrooms and other things that are in nature and they say this is something as well so I guess if you're stranded out in the woods collect a bunch of Japanese beetles and there's your protein yeah, it's. I, I have eaten uh, grasshoppers, ants, crickets, grubs. Uh, I've talked to a lot of people who have eaten cicadas, so I could, I could see how Japanese beetles would be pretty tasty. I know the grubs tasted sort of a, a nutty taste to them. So they were. They were. I don't know what kind of grubs they were, but they were. Definitely, so you, I've eaten a lot of worse things. So you're willing to try all those? Yeah, I, I wouldn't because I'm such a, a finicky eater. But so, you know, other than those covered with lots of chocolate, have you eaten them, you know, just kind of almost plain? Yeah, I, I didn't eat any with chocolate. Oh. They did have chocolate-covered things for some people, but I'd, <laughs> I'd rather eat the insect than chocolate. So oh, that's, that's me. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I I am willing. Like I say, they, they were much better than... a. 
I shouldn't say a lot of things I've eaten, but certainly some things I've eaten were not as good as those insects. Well, you know, I, I just got a note from um, our friend Tom TJ, Tom Jess, and he asked if, if, if I'm sure that it's toads I'm hearing and not tree frogs. He says tree frogs give off more of a scream, as you described, while toads give more of a continuous yep. trill. So maybe I am hearing, maybe they are tree frogs too, because uh, I know there's lots of toads in the pond that I heard earlier. So he, he may be right. Um, and I guess I, I haven't seen them, but I haven't really looked. So I'll check yep, that out, Tom. You- Thanks. Yep, thanks, TJ. You will hear uh, tree frogs. Some people think it's kind of a bird-like song or sound. Uh, I th- I think toads are just great singers with uh, those trills. I love to hear them. So. Uh, Judy Dahl of Slayton sent me a photo of a great blue heron perched right on the very tippy top of a pine tree. Uh, Brad Amondroth saw a stilt sandpiper in Blue Earth County. Uh, Doug Keezer found a blue grosbeak at Casota Prairie, SNA, in Lesseur County. Bob Williams saw an eared grebe in Faribault County. Uh, Ken Nelson of Clarks Grove said, how many broods do barn swallows have each year? Uh, one or two I don't know how they decide, just how things are going, I guess, how many flying insects they find or uh, the relationships working out. Or, uh, what preys on skunks? There was a Ohio State University biologist. I want to say his name was Stan Gert. And he found that coyotes, foxes, dogs, bobcats, mountain lions, badgers, and great horned owls can all eat skunks, but they don't for the most part. Uh, He he found that less than 5% of skunk mortality is caused by predators, and I would imagine the main part of that, and this is not counting cars, uh, the greater part of that 5% would be great horned owls. A listener said, thanks for KMSU. I think it's the same. It might be the same listener. It kind of signs thanks for KMSU every every once a month or so. So we're glad you're listening. But said, what species of trees are Major League Baseball bats made from? Oh, it's uh, good to get a question, and I'm sure of the answer. The Bats must be made from a single piece of wood, so they can't be composites, and they can't be metal, of course. And by far the most popular one is maple. Oh, I always and thought it, it was ash because it, I, I know recall seeing that in a crossword puzzle, that question, and it was three letters, so it had to be ash. <laughs> and it used to be. Oh, it really? It used to be ash, yeah. Oh. And But I think now it's like 80% of the major league baseball bats are maple. Really? Uh, Maple has great density. It's hard and durable. Uh, You can see a lot of the bats that shatter when they break, and those are probably maple. And ash used to be the most popular bat because it was flexible and light, but it wasn't as durable as maple. And again, maple is very durable, but when it breaks, it just shatters. They also have birch bats. Uh, They're soft and flexible. They're more durable, but they require a break-in period. So you can't use them right away. 
And as everybody knows, you can't hit a home run without a bat. And there's another tree that's involved in when a player steps into the batter's box. Pine tar is this tacky substance produced by the high temperature carbonization of pine wood. And it's used in boy, soaps and shampoos, treatments for certain skin condition. Uh, wooden bats can be slippery, so they use pine tars added to improve the grip. And I remember stepping into the box and having that sticky pine tar all over and get all over your uniform and everything else, so it's kind of disgusting. But y- you thought you looked cool when you're in there, even if you couldn't hit a curveball. So it was. Uh, do morning doves mate for life? Uh, yes and no. They are seasonally monogamous, but there's and there are indications that some birds may repair. And by not, I'm putting a hyphen in repair there in subsequent breeding seasons. So so they could be but they're not always. Uh, we like to think that all the birds mate for life, and they just they seem like birds that would mate for life, but they don't always. How many litters does a rabbit have each year? An eastern cottontail rabbit female is capable of having well, at least seven litters a year, but in Minnesota, we have weather that makes that difficult, so it's likely to have three maybe four, because each year about 80% of Minnesota's cottontail population dies from weather, predators, and disease. So they, but I think we still do not have to worry about rabbits. It seems like there's, there's, there's an abundance out of them every year. Uh, last question I have, do great horned owls add anything to a nest? It, the common deer, I guess, would be a perfect term. The nests of red-tailed hawks, crows, ravens up north, herons, squirrels, even eagles. There's all kinds of videos online of great horned owls taking over an eagle nest. And owls may line the nest with bark and sometimes some leaves, uh, their own down, and then fur or feathers from prey but they really don't do any repairs on it. They don't add to the substance of the nest. They're just really bad renters, and you can't <laughs> get them out. See, Al, before you before you go, I know we're almost out of time, but I just got a, a text from our friend Deb saying, Hey, Karen, a couple of weeks ago I started to have the Japanese beetles on my Morning Glories and Virginia Creeper. I started the soapy water trick, you know, where you spray them with soapy water, yep. but... I've noticed over the over time that they have they're almost null and void. In other words, they're they're disappearing. She says, but lately I've noticed that I have the winsome fly, and the winsome fly is that one that's the parasitic fly that that lays its eggs in them. So, but I thought it had to go in the ground first and and eat the the larva or something. It, yeah, and I I would think you know most of the. The flies, like uh, we get tachinid flies that lay eggs in our monarch butterfly caterpillars. Mm-hmm. And they don't bother the adults at all, but they go after the larvae. So I I don't know how those winsome flies, I, I have heard that they attack Japanese beetles, so we gotta, we got to like them. And uh, I, I don't know if I'd... 
I'm sure I've probably seen a winsome fly. I know it's real small, but I don't know a whole lot more about them at all. Well, last uh, night at, at our Master Gardener meeting, they were talking about them, and it said they're real common on like the, the, the east and the west coast, and they not uh, haven't necessarily arrived here in large numbers. So, because I said, where can I buy some if you know it helps get rid of Japanese beetles? Sure. But apparently, they're more populated on the coast so in in good time so if if deb has them uh good for you i hope it i hope it works for she, all of them she should breed them and sell them yes. online i think so. <laughs> yes and they must go after the beetles because i don't know how they'd get at the the larvae because they'd be underground so they well, must go after the beetles well they say that they lay the the eggs in the the beetle and then when so you shouldn't kill those beetles because then the beetles go underground and then somehow then they destroy the larva of the the beetle or something like that oh yeah i'll have to have to maybe do a little research on that yeah hey thanks everybody for sitting on the front porch with us you know poison ivy Uh it's a salad bar for some animals but not for humans every part of the poison ivy plant is poisonous to us Humans and possibly a few other primates are the only animals that react to poison ivy, although I I read once that hamsters and guinea pigs do too. I don't know how they tested the poor animals on that. But your dog and cat don't get it, but we can get it from their fur. Really? Or do birds, deer, squirrels, snakes, bears, or insects get it? I've watched deer feed on the plant. Some people are immune to that getting the rash, but but there's a lot of other people that think they are immune and aren't, so be careful. Studies have shown that as the level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere increases, it boosts the growth of poison ivy plants. Bigger, stronger poison ivy plants produce more of that sap that gets us as the coasters sang in Poison Ivy, measles make you bumpy and mumps make you lumpy <laughs> and chicken pox will make you jump and twitch. A common cold will fool you and whooping cough will cool you, but Poison Ivy, Lord, will make you itch. Remember, folks, heartless while we're driving past, thanks for listening and do something wild today. Get out there and look at a bird. Thank you, Karen, as always. And that was great to hear about the winsome flies. Yay, winsome flies. <laughs> they win. Thanks, Al. Always great to hear from you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.